Civity is a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with others who are different, moving people from us versus them to we all belong. To learn more, go to civity.org. In this episode, we explore how othering has led to increased marginalization and vilification of people who are unhoused, and how civity can help counter this trend by helping people who are housed see the humanity of those without housing. My guest is Eric Tars, legal director of the National Homelessness Law Center, who reminds us that housing is a human right and hopes that helping people see each other's humanity can bring this back into focus. Palma and Malka speak so highly of you and um, are really excited about the work you're doing and how you're approaching it. What is the work you're doing with relation to your connection with Civity and with Malka and Palma? I understand it's housing, but I'd love to hear from your perspective. Palma and I know each other from when she was teaching at Georgetown Law School, taught a civic organizing class there that has been kind of <laughs> instrumental in my career since. And I had no idea she was following along what I was doing, but it was great when she reached out because my understanding, at least, is that she is starting to work on civic dialogue around issues of housing and, and homelessness and the real divides that we find in our communities around these issues uh, because I think housing is such a fundamental issue. You know, on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's one of our most fundamental. So uh, when people are threatened without having housing, either because they actually don't have it or because they have to confront the concept that others in the community don't have it and that it might in turn be them, it can reach right down into that reptilian brain and trigger some really powerful emotional responses. That's why we need civic dialogue in a respectful and understanding and empathetic tone to be able to get us out of that fear response, triggered response, and into actual dialogue where we can talk about the fact that, you know, Yes, homelessness is bad, and it's bad for everybody in the community, and the solution is not a law enforcement-based one uh, that's only actually going to make things worse. It might erase the problem from your particular street corner, but it's just going to put it on somebody else's, and then you know that person who's had to go through that traumatic law enforcement experience is going to have an arrest record, is going to have fines and fees they can't pay as a barrier before they can actually get out of homelessness. So it's actually prolonging homelessness and making it worse in your community, even if you can't see it on your street corner anymore. And so instead, we need to be focusing on the actual systemic solutions to address the underlying causes of homelessness. But it's hard to get to that that meaningful conversation. If you can get to that conversation on the merits, the constructive solutions win every time. But if you can't get there, if you're just stuck in that fear-based response, which is where some politicians like to keep you, then you don't get to the actual evidence-based responses that are going to solve things. 
and things that only end up getting worse. I want to ask you so many things, but I want to start with this whole reptilian brain, emotional response, fear-based response versus, I'm paraphrasing, but you said solutions that, you know, that solve the problem, win every time, right? Like solutions that actually address the issue of homelessness, win every time. And yet these trigger responses keep winning and they keep driving the issue forward. Um, and you mentioned politicians, of course, and, and and obviously there's a role, that a big role they're playing there. But I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, at least from your perspective in your experience, why you think it is that that emotional fear-based trigger response wins the day here and and that and that the stuff that really solves the problem it doesn't seem to be gaining traction in a lot of cases unfortunately you know we are now kind of operating in this post truth society where truthiness is more important than truth and the dunning kruger effect convinces people you know the less they know the more they're convinced they know everything and and so you get stuck in these reactions when you hear the actual truth, if it doesn't fit into the frame that you've convinced yourself is the correct frame, then it doesn't mesh. And so it makes uh, the pre-existing narratives and prejudices and stereotypes so much more effective. So in America, you know, we have this narrative of the American work ethic. And if you work hard, then you get ahead. And the corollary is, therefore, if you haven't gotten ahead, if you're out there on the streets, then it must be because you haven't worked hard. It's not the systemic issues. Rents have gone up. Wages have remained flat for decades. But it must be something that you've done. And therefore, it's fine to blame you. And, you know, you just kind of keep on going down that road. And if you're, you know, a wealthy individual, then you might not like that reminder that poverty exists in your community. And then you have to confront, you know, is the inequality that I'm benefiting from uh, actually fair? And if you're a poor person, then you can see that person out there on the street and you say, one, you get this triggered fear response there, but for the grace of God, go I. And rather than that creating empathy, it creates the I don't want to think about this kind of effect. There's also that why should that person get free housing if I have to work two jobs to pay the rent and instead of questioning why do I have to work two jobs to pay the rent and seeing that we're all on the same side here and we're confronting the same issues of lack of affordable housing in our communities and this person is just somebody who, you know, wasn't able to keep working that second job or is actually working two jobs, but still wasn't able to pay the rent. And so it's that combination of the fear-based response mixed with the judgment um, that fits into the narrative that kind of keeps it in that individual analysis rather than getting to uh, look at the systemic problems that are actually creating homelessness. As you know, in so many areas of policy in the U.S. or issues in the U.S., we do tend to look at each other rather than looking at the system or rather than looking at the people who sort of are the gatekeepers of the system. And that does keep us, I think, in a lot of cases from really solving the problem. So you're doing work now that um, that I would say Palma Malka and I would call very civity-oriented in that you're trying to connect people on various sides of the housing issue to be in relationship with each other so that they can make these connections and 
work in sort of maybe from a different frame or a different angle to try to solve this problem. Talk to me a little bit about how you got to this place where you identified the idea that building relationships across some of these um, housing uh, groups or housing silos was uh, was something you thought might be effective. So the underlying problem is that we, we don't have enough affordable housing in our community. And we need people to be engaged, to engage with their elected officials to help them make that happen. Um, but in many cases, even when you get approval for funding or uh, actually you know, have somebody, a private developer applying for somewhere to put it, the community itself says, nope, not in my backyard. It's a great idea, but it should always be somewhere else. We know that if we actually want to create this affordable housing we need, it, it's got to be somewhere. And that's also all kind of wrapped up in myths and prejudices about who the people who live in affordable housing are. They're our neighbors. Um, and when they're living in housing, they aren't living on the streets. <laughs> um, and the buildings that they live in most often actually increase and do not decrease property values if that's, you know, what you're concerned about at the end of the day. But regardless, your ability to profit from your own housing shouldn't be overriding other people's need for housing. So we need to be able to, to talk to people and emphasize that we are all in this together and this housing, everybody needs it in the community. And if you don't have it, then everybody in the community suffers. You also have uh, what we found in particular working on one of our cases uh, in uh, uh, San Diego around vehicle residency, people who um, in many cases disabled and elderly people uh, who can't uh, access regular shelters even. There's not enough shelter, but even that that uh, exists isn't disabled accessible. And so the best place that they can actually live is in vehicles. It, um, they can't afford the rent on their social security or pension income. But you get these neighborhood groups who take pictures of trash outside of some of these motorhomes, uh, RVs, uh, vans that people are living in, you know, pictures of poop on the sidewalk, uh, and they're sending them to their elected officials like, generating all this energy in these neighborhood uh, next door type groups. And uh, we found in this uh, case, we actually got the judge to agree that enforcing these laws was unconstitutional, unfair. The city repealed the ordinance, but within days, uh, the folks on those um, next door networks were sending those pictures in saying, this is, you know, uh, what's happening in my neighborhood. You need to do something about it. And they reinstituted. They just tweaked the wording a little, and they put that ordinance right back into effect. And, you know, all the legal work that we had done, like, basically went out the window. And so we were back in courts and, and continuing to work on it again. You know, I just had this vision where there's so much energy in those groups. And if it could only be turned to constructive solutions. If there was just one person in that group who said, look, I agree with you. Those people should not be you know, living in vans uh, on our streets. They should be in housing. And if we don't figure out where they can safely be, then they are only 
going to be somewhere else and in a situation worse. And making it illegal to park on the streets so that their vehicles get towed, their homes get taken away is only going to put them literally out on the streets. And you're going to like that a lot less than them living in their vehicles. And these are mostly, as I said, like elderly disabled people. Like, is that how we want to treat each other in this community? And so I feel like if you just get that one voice in each one of these, you know, next door networks, then you could take all that energy that says we need a solution to this problem and really make it a solution that that works for everybody in the community rather than just the house people. I don't know how to do that, <laughs> um, but that's that's the vision that I have that like if we can can change that dialogue at that neighborhood level and get all of that um, really intense energy focused on solutions that can work for everybody, then we all win. And even the for the elected officials, it doesn't make it easier for them to criminalize homelessness. It's just the, the most politically expedient thing for them to do because they know that if they don't act in response to the community, uh, if they aren't seen acting, if they try to get, you know, a new housing bond approved so that there's funding for affordable housing, then they're going to try and get it cited. It's going to be, you know, three, five years before ground is even broken. By that point, they've been voted out of office because they weren't responsive to the community telling them that homelessness was a priority. And so the easiest thing for them to do is always just criminalize it make it disappear from the people who are complaining about its streets and say, I did something. But if you can get the people of that community saying, look, we will support you in making that long-term investment that's actually going to solve this problem for all of us, then it, it frees them up really to do the right thing rather than just the expedient thing. Yeah. And I think you've identified the problem so well, <laughs> you know, and as far as what to do about it, I, you know, I think that's where civity can come into play is, is this idea of so civity's motto is from us versus them to we all belong and palma and malka told me that you said something that i just want to call out moving from we need to get rid of these people to we need to help our neighbors and to me that's exactly from us versus them to we all belong i mean that is civity at its core and so sometimes it's that small sort of thing that feels squishy you know, let, let's get people face to face with each other, talking, learning about each other, understanding the humanity. And there's great research out there that once you begin to see someone's humanity, it's really difficult to backtrack on that. I feel like civity kind of nudges people, you know, in that direction. That's why you have folks like, you know, former President Trump, who are fear mongering around these issues and using that same kind of you know, rapist and murderers language that he used about people coming over the border. He's now using about people experiencing homelessness, um, trying to make people afraid so that they don't don't make that connection. They're afraid to even go into that homeless encampment where it's just our neighbors who don't have homes who are suffering and who could use that that connection. Um, but if you're too afraid to even go there, then then you don't make that connection in the first place. That's one of the kind of really insidious things that's that we see happening a lot more now, this national push to criminalize and demonize this population and lock them up, move them into internment camps under the threat of arrest. It's 
it really is kind of this creeping fascism, the the antithesis of democracy and, and civity and civic dialogue, and, you know, that others don't belong and we need to get them out of the community. You're right. It is insidious. And I wish more people would recognize it because it's very scary and it's so effective because black and white narratives are easy to understand and and we definitely have an uphill battle with regard to trying to get people to see each other's humanity and make connections so to me the work you're doing and hopefully the work civity is doing is is needed now more than ever i think that jump to you know we all belong like we saw the potential of it in the pandemic when we did realize we were all in it together you know, that the threat of tens of millions of Americans losing their housing because they were out of work actually got the resources that we needed to keep them in their housing through emergency rental assistance. And, you know, having worked in federal housing and homelessness policy for a long time, every year we say, you know, you are giving one quarter of the amount that we need you know, we need X billion dollars and you're giving us, you know, a quarter of that. But in the pandemic, we said we need $65 billion of emergency rental assistance. And we got $65 billion of emergency rental assistance. It was poorly rolled out because we don't have the infrastructure in place and lots of problems with it. But like, for once, we had that that bipartisan consensus that like, we have to keep people in their homes or it's going to make this pandemic so much worse and have lasting impacts for so many people. And for the people on the streets, we got the CDC to come out with guidance that said, if you move people out of encampments without providing them with individual housing, if you put them into congregate shelters or into jails, even worse, like that's going to be the worst thing that we could do for the pandemic. And if you want that ICU bed available for when you need it or your grandmother needs it, then you got to make sure it's not already filled up with a person, a medically vulnerable person who's been living on the streets, who was, you know, thrown into a homeless shelter, and then suddenly all hundred people in there are sharing the same air and all getting COVID. So they said, you know, no evictions without individual housing. And then FEMA actually supported communities in getting those individual housing units, uh, providing hotel rooms for people experiencing homelessness. And we saw that a lot of this myth of service resistance, quote unquote, service resistance was just that was a myth. When you are offering somebody only a congregate shelter bed in a uh, facility that doesn't actually meet their needs, sure, they're going to refuse that. But when you offer them a dignified space, the same as you would want for yourself or anybody else uh, in your family with its own locking door, with its own bathroom, then they took it 95% plus of the time, you know, so it's not that they're service resistant, it's that the services are people resistant. And all of that really helped to keep the pandemic from getting worse. And so we had this, this moment, these models of what we can do when we realize we're all in it together. You know, even the Congress can work. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's kind of all faded and we're back to to business as usual. It shows the potential that when we have that dialogue, when we respect each other as human beings, when we understand that we're all part of the same community, then we can actually get the solutions that everybody benefits from. I think that's a great point. And in particular, 
the immediacy of just to go back to understanding how it affects everyone, because I think we have a hard time with that. But the pandemic helped us understand when you talked about the hospital beds. If we fill up the hospital beds with COVID patients and I have a heart attack or my mother has something, you know, then we don't get the care we need. So like it, you may not be affected right this moment, but you might be affected tomorrow. And and I think people got it. And you're right. How do we get them to get it again, especially with the political narratives? I want to talk about kind of the players in the housing game, right? You mentioned the next door crowd, to, for lack of a better phraseology. But there are also people who are advocating, right? There are people who are advocating for uh, unhoused. There are people advocating for um, affordable housing for working people who are, you know, having trouble getting into the market. What are some of the other groups that you are trying to sort of convene together or connect? Um, and then Malkin Palma also mentioned the missing middle, and I'm not sure who represents that. First and foremost, uh, who we need as part of the policy conversation is are the people who are most directly impacted. Um, and so often they aren't part of the conversation. We see all sorts of prescriptions for housing and services for people experiencing homelessness that aren't designed with the input of the people experiencing homelessness. And they work as well as you'd predict if you design something without the end user involved. And that's where you get these people-resistant services and, and approaches from, uh, rather than providing the, the housing and services that people actually need in a way that's uh, accessible to them. So we need them, uh, first and foremost, the, the people with lived expertise in homelessness, as well as people who are housing unstable and experiencing that, that threat of homelessness um, and know uh, the difficulties, for example, of you know, even if you get a Section 8 voucher in many communities, it's perfectly legal to discriminate based on your source of income. Um, and so landlords just say, no, we don't rent to people with a voucher. In some communities, upwards of like 60 or 70 percent of the, the vouchers don't get used because people literally can't find a place to, to rent to them. So you need those people involved. But then there are many local housing and homeless advocacy groups. There's national, regional, statewide ones. The National Low Income Housing Coalition uh, is really working on the kind of prevention side of, of the equation and has tons of great uh, reports. One's called The Gap that shows the gap between minimum wages in each state and what you can actually afford in terms of housing with that. And in no state across the country can you actually afford even a one-bedroom apartment, you know, working full-time at the minimum wage. In many communities, you can't even afford it working two full-time jobs at the minimum wage. And kind of to your point about the, the missing middle, like there's such an intense lack of housing for the most desperately poor people that everybody is forced into this unaffordable housing where they're doubling up, tripling up, and then they're competing for those scarce kind of middle income units and people are forced into higher income. And so it like it pushes up the whole way up. Um, and we're always told that there should be like a trickle down effect from all these luxury units that are being bought. But it, it's, it's the exact opposite. Uh, it's everybody's forced to squeeze into uh, fewer and fewer units. I saw one statistic that in one year in Los Angeles, 90% of the apartments that were built were 
affordable to only 10% of the people. And it's exactly the opposite is what we need. And this is actually, there was a, a study across the country showing that 80 to 90% of the new units built in any given year all across the country are luxury units. So we aren't, we aren't building ourselves out of this crisis right now. We're just continuing to line the pockets of developers, line the pockets of landlords, because people are going to, you know, scrimp, save, sacrifice meals, sacrifice medicine, um, sacrifice their children's education just to be able to have a roof over their head in one of these units that they can't afford. So the missing middle, we have to focus on the needs of the lowest income people first, and then the benefits will trickle up. If we start with the middle, then we aren't going to get. And so often we see this kind of creaming effect. And even within homeless services, the emphasis is on homeless families or homeless veterans or you know, and you often get the kind of most sympathetic folks and the, the folks who are easiest to house who get the services first. Um, and we really need to work to get resources to the people who are most desperately in need and then, you know, kind of work our way up from there. Because if we start from the middle, we're actually never going to get all the way down. What are some of the legal issues that you find yourself dealing with as you navigate this, uh, this issue? We are working to defend the rights of people who are living on the streets. And it is not our goal in this to defend the right of somebody to sleep on the streets. That's not a win for us. It's not a win for them. It's not a win for the community. But the reason that we do this is so that we take that most politically expedient option of we'll just criminalize everybody and push them out of public sight off the table. And in many communities, well, so with one of our cases, uh, Martin v. Boise, in which the, the Ninth Circuit recognized that it's cruel and unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment to punish somebody for unavoidable life-sustaining conduct, like needing to sleep, needing to shelter yourself from the elements in the absence of any alternative. And so many communities uh, signed on to amicus briefs and protested and said, like, this takes away tools from law enforcement to deal with homelessness. Uh, it takes away tools from our community to deal with homelessness. No, it doesn't. Law enforcement shouldn't be dealing with homelessness. If you're objecting to the principle that you shouldn't be able to criminally punish somebody unless you provide them with an adequate alternative, all it means is you want to be able to criminally punish somebody for doing something that they can't help but do without having to provide them with an alternative. It's pretty morally indefensible. You're listening to This is Civity. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking about housing as a human right with Eric Tars, legal director of the National Homelessness Law Center. And this idea that we're taking away tools, it, it's exactly the opposite. It's we are giving them tools to you know, allow them when those constituents come in to them and say, there's this encampment on my corner, I want it gone. They can say, well, look, the courts have told us you know, we can't just simply push those people off that corner unless we give them someplace better to go. So let's work together to find those constructive solutions. It opens up the ability for dialogue rather than getting the elected officials and the community as a whole siphoned off into this, this negative spiral, which is where we always seem to end up. Um, so it really opens up the, the conversation. And so that's 
kind of the, the reason that we bring these cases, it's not the end in itself. Um, it's a, a tool that we're trying to leverage uh, in order to have the broader policy dialogue that we need to have in a context where that sort of easy, quick fix solution that doesn't actually fix anything isn't so easy anymore. That's what we're hoping to do with this. In some places, it's worked. It's helped to generate that um, that shift in approach. In too many other places, like I said, like what happened in San Diego, they just tweak the words a little bit, pay their lawyers lots of money that could be going to homelessness, um, and instead, you know, uh, just try and find the constitutional loophole or bring themselves up, you know, a tiny bit, looking for the the lowest common denominator rather than like what would actually uh, help in the community. Yeah, that always fascinates me. Like so much money is spent to defend. And I'm like, but take that, that money. My God, we could just fix it here. Yeah, that, that always fascinates me. In Los Angeles one year, they had a report that out of the $100 million spent to address homelessness, $87 million of it was for law enforcement. Only $13 million was for the services. If you flip that, then you actually solve homelessness right. in, in the community. But they don't because because you can hide the costs of homelessness in that police budget. You don't have to acknowledge it. Whereas for the housing and the services, you almost always have to acknowledge it up front. And again, we need to bring those costs out because that's what enables the true civic dialogue to take place. When when you don't have that transparency, then you aren't able to have the 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 conversation that you actually need. Your San Diego example, there's the idea of, you know, federal government or the state government will pass a law, but local agencies are responsible for implementing it. And that can be very different. Right now in, in California, there are two bills that have been introduced that would criminalize homelessness statewide. And they both don't have any fiscal component to them. And so often this is what we see, like, that they'll pass the law and uh, in many communities they have these fiscal sunshine provisions that say like if you need to make a budget allocation for it and they all say check the box no fiscal impact nothing could be further from the truth it's going to cost two to three times more than providing housing would but you you get to hide that fact and that's why it's so easy to pass these laws you know people are coming at this you know we talked about earlier the uh the reptilian brain and the emotion and the fear People who live in the communities where the housed people are looking at the unhoused people and that perception is real to them, right? Like they're not trying to be mean or whatever. They might be scared that something would happen no matter how um, borne out that is or un, you know, factual or not factual that may be. So when people sort of engage in what used to be called nimbyism and now I guess it's, oh, I want to preserve the character of my community or, oh, I'm concerned about crime or whatever it is. Um, do you have a response to them? How do you reframe that narrative to both address and acknowledge that their concerns, but help bring them along? What I always lead with is we all agree that people shouldn't be living on the streets. It's not safe or healthy for anybody in the community. Again, trying to build that sense of we are all in this together um, and reframe it as this is about all of us. We agree that it isn't safe for people to live on the streets. We agree that public safety is, is suffering, but public safety is not served by criminalizing 
people who are just trying to survive by compelling law enforcement officers who aren't trained, you know, for crisis intervention, um, like a, a social worker it would be, to have to go with a sidearm on their hip to threaten to take away somebody's tent, that their their very shelter. Again, that base level of your Maslow's hierarchy, of course, people are going to react to that, um, to that threat, to their very survival. And it's setting them up, it's setting the police up for, you know, the next viral video incident. Um, and they don't want to be in that position. In Los Angeles, with, with some of these bills that they're suggesting, they're saying, we don't want to be <laughs> in that role. Stop putting us as the frontline responders to homelessness. It should be trained outreach workers who are there, not with a sidearm, but with offers of services and housing that people actually need, building relationships with people. And that's going to get a way better response. And that's, again, evidence borne out um, in the communities that have actually ended chronic homelessness in this country. There's dozens of communities that have ended veterans homelessness in this country because they've been provided with those resources and with those outreach workers to go and talk to, instead of just saying there's, you know, all these homeless people out there, they all need services. They know that Joe, the veteran with PTSD, cannot go into a uh, congregate shelter uh, because that triggers his, his, you know, memories of being in service. But when that individual room opens up, that Joe should get it and not somebody else who might not need that specific uh, kind of housing. And that kind of by name list, intensive outreach, connection to the services and housing that people actually need, that's what has successfully ended homelessness. We can do this. We know it's not the homeless services that are failing to end homelessness. They know what they're doing. It's the failure to give them the resources they need. And so if we can shift those resources and say public safety is not just served by law enforcement. Public safety is served by housing people. It's actually going to cost less. <laughs> public health, if you're concerned about the feces on the sidewalk, you know, nobody likes nobody likes to see that and nobody likes to have to go to the bathroom in public. It's incredibly demeaning. Like we are the wealthiest country in the world. We should not have that problem. So if public health officials thought that criminalizing people was the answer, they would say that. But no, the American Public Health Association has said criminalization is the worst approach. The public health approach is, you know, you provide public bathrooms in place, or you get people into housing, and you use these evidence-based methods to do it. And so that's the public health response. Like I said, if we can get to the merits-based conversation with people, then whether you look at it from a fiscal, a public health, a public safety approach, these constructive approaches win every time. But we just have to, to get to that conversation in the first place. But one other point on public safety, there are other studies that show that in communities that take this really forceful approach to enforcement of low-level crimes, the rates of prosecution of violent crimes actually go down. So there are fewer violent criminals being prosecuted because the courts and the police are too busy 
So you're not even making the community safer. You're making it less safe by focusing on people just trying to survive outside. I noticed you had, uh, before you're, you came to this work, you did a lot of international work. So I'm wondering if there's any aspect of your international experience that informs your approaches and your perspectives uh, currently. I came to this work from the international human rights perspective that housing is a basic human right. have been working at the Law Center for the past uh, 15, 16 years towards that end. And for probably a decade of that, felt like I was banging my head against a brick wall, um, but doing a lot of really great base building work at the grassroots level. And I mean, if you talk to a person experiencing homelessness or somebody uh, who can't afford their rent and you tell them housing is your basic human right as part inherent in your essential human dignity, that resonates and it changes the perspective from we need to beg for charity for these basic human needs to we are demanding our rights from our government that has a duty to us and it is failing in that duty. It is violating its own obligations to provide for us its citizens. And so this movement towards housing as a human right has been growing at the grassroots level and we've been working at the federal level as well. And finally, uh, over the past probably five years or so, we've seen uh, folks like Pramila Jayapal introducing the Housing as a Human Right Act, folks like uh, Cori Bush camping out on the steps of the Capitol building, demanding that we extend the eviction moratorium under this giant banner that says housing is a human right. And even folks like Joe Biden uh, and Kamala Harris coming into office as you know the first presidential platform since FDR that says housing is a human right. We've started to shift the narrative. You're listening to This Is Civity. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking about housing as a human right with Eric Tars, legal director of the National Homelessness Law Center. It's my hope that, like, whereas a decade ago, then-candidate Obama was asked, do you believe health care is a right or a privilege? And he said, it's a, a right. Um, and that was progressive at the time, but ultimately laid the moral and rhetorical basis for getting the Affordable Care Act, which is obviously not a full right to health care for everybody, but it's a big step forward. And so my hope is that we're kind of in that same place where we're laying this rhetorical underlying principle the same way that FDR did way back in the 1940s when he proposed the second Bill of Rights, and that led to the New Deal programs that actually helped to put that into place. It laid the basis in the American consciousness. We're creating this new social contract that says we aren't going to let our fellow Americans endure homelessness because we all believe that housing is, is a right. We're still dealing with segregation and education and housing, but we collectively as a culture look back and say, I can't believe there was a time when segregation was legally permitted. So I hope it doesn't take that long, but like I'm I'm hopeful that someday what we're starting now, we'll look back and we'll say, I can't believe there was a time when we let our fellow Americans become homeless. How do you see civity informing your work? I think it, it all has to start from that very neighborhood level. We need that sense that we are all in this together, that these are our unhoused neighbors. There was a camp up in Walla Walla, Washington, 
in the, this kind of city square, there was a lot more kind of downtown activity happening, and uh, they didn't want the people experiencing homelessness there. They assumed they were all transients, nomads, out-of-towners, um, and they just wanted them gone. But when they did a survey and found out that 90% of them had lived in Walla Walla prior to becoming homeless, and 75% of them were actually born there, it changed the dialogue. And they said, these aren't, you know, strangers. These aren't other. These are us. These are our people who we have failed. And so let's look for alternative solutions other than just locking up our, our neighbors. That's where it all has to start. And we have to be able to have that dialogue, uh, get beyond those fear-based responses. And that's the only path forward. We can't do it in the courts alone. We know that if we if we try, then if we haven't laid the groundwork, then we're just going to end up right back where we, we were before. So yeah, it has to be this organizing, deliberative democracy uh, kind of approach. How you personally came to this work, why is this the work you're in? Why is this for you? So my father uh, was born in a refugee camp during World War II spent seven years uh, in various camps in post-war Germany and then came to the U.S. And I always just had this sense that, like, I was really lucky <laughs> to have been born into, I didn't name it privilege back when I was young, but, like, to have the advantages just simply by being born in this country into a nice house in the suburbs and you know, good public education and all that. And I needed to do something to ensure that other people, like I wouldn't want anything worse for anybody else than I would have wanted for my own father. And so um, that was what led me on the road towards international human rights. And I kind of assumed that I was going to be doing this work abroad. But then when I was in law school, I was working with a professor, Mari Matsuda, who uh, is one of the founders of critical race theory movement, getting a lot of attention these days. The actual critical race theory, not... Yeah, not how it's being framed. <laughs> <laughs> but we were working on an article on access to education and racial discrimination and these for-profit charter school companies. And she kind of said, you know, do these international human rights standards that you're studying apply to this issue? And I said, oh my God, yes, they do. And they're so much better than this law that we have here in the U.S. Um, why aren't we using these standards as part of our advocacy strategies? Why aren't we using the international mechanisms to highlight these issues? And um, that was kind of my eureka moment where I said, I need to use this international human rights toolkit that I have, but apply it to issues here in the U.S. Um, and luckily, I graduated um into kind of the rebirth of the domestic human rights movement in this country. The human rights movement at its origins was very informed by the civil rights movement. And because others saw the potential of them to undermine the Jim Crow system that they had in place, they resisted this. And so for 50 years of the Cold War, the civil rights community was forced to divorce itself from this system of international human rights because any critique at the international level of the U.S. was just helping the communists. You know, their actual kind of 
letters where Eleanor Roosevelt, kind of the champion of human rights, was on the NAACP board and threatened to resign if the NAACP didn't withdraw its petition charging genocide, that Jim Crow was genocide. But it was just too much of a threat to the system. Even some evidence to say that like Brown v. Board was actually a response to kind of give the civil rights community this idea that, oh, we can just go with this system of civil rights domestically. We don't need to do this international human rights thing. And so for 50 years, you know, we had this kind of divide and the rest of the world was making progress where as like in the U.S., we just had this right to non-discrimination in the right to housing. Elsewhere, they had the full right to housing. And towards the end of his career, even Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, others were saying, we need to get back to this human rights system, because even if we have the right to non-discrimination, if our housing is still inadequate, if our wages are still inadequate, then we aren't at equality yet. So luckily, in the early 2000s, the memory of the Cold War was fading. We had President G.W. Bush in office, who was undermining civil rights and all these social justice goals left and right. And the civil rights community was looking for a place that would be responsive to its needs. And they found human rights again. And luckily, I kind of happened into this regrowing movement and was able to then come to the the National Homelessness Law Center, uh, which was looking and saying, we aren't going to get the resources we need to end homelessness in this country, which is, you know, our mission unless we get this consensus that housing is a human right. And that's what's going to give us the basis for that political will to actually solve the thing. Is there anything else you want to say that I didn't ask you that you think it's important for people to know? The racially disparate impact of all these policies, whether it's the lack of affordable housing or the criminalization of homelessness, uh, we are all harmed by these things. But there are some communities that are harmed more than others. In some communities, half the people who are in jail on any given night are there because of homelessness. In San Francisco, there's a study done, African-American homeless people are 10 times more likely to be charged for these low-level quality of life offenses than white people. So each one of those arrests, each one of those tickets is an opportunity for police violence. And so if your issue is police brutality, if your issue is mass incarceration, your issue is homelessness and the criminalization of homelessness. And the solution to all of this is housing. And we already see the disparate impact of evictions and lack of affordable housing on Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. You know, this is an equity issue. Anybody who considers themselves in favor of equity There's only one right side to be on, and that's against criminalization and for adequate housing and services. It's true on a racial front, but also for people with disabilities, for the LGBTQ community, all these already marginalized communities. That marginalization intersects with homelessness and makes people even more vulnerable to police violence, to homelessness to uh, vigilante violence, um, which we see a lot and growing in communities. Uh, There was an article that just came out last week that showed the rate of murder of people experiencing homelessness has kind of gone way up over the, the past few years. And the demonization of people experiencing homelessness 
by elected officials and the dehumanization is having this effect. It, it is, you know, uh, causing people to believe that if I go out and assault or kill a person experiencing homelessness, I'm not going to get any consequences for that. So this is all impacting, as Heather McGee says in Some of Us, these things that hurt the most marginalized the most hurt us all. If we are working towards a more equitable world, this has to be part of the conversation. Well, I cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you to my guest, Eric Tars, Legal Director of the National Homelessness Law Center. For more information, go to homelesslaw.org. Civity is a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with others who are different, moving people from us versus them to we all belong. To learn more, go to civity.org. Left, right, black or white, we all dream about the same things tonight.